Hi, welcome to the Weekly Reboot. We're back. We took a break over Christmas and New Year, but now we're back and we've tweaked the format a little. Now we're aiming to bring you a bonus episode every second week because we know you love those bonus episodes. And we're also going to intersperse those with a reboot download of what we've been hearing and seeing from the Agile community here and beyond. And we'll do that every second week too. So we're still going to be in your ears every Friday. And to kick off our year today, Friday the 25th of January, in a very hot day in Melbourne, we have our first bonus episode. I spoke to Rowan Bunning from Scrum with Style. Rowan was a pioneer of the Agile movement in the early noughties in Australia and also is now a Scrum trainer and coach at Scrum with Style. Really enjoyed our chat. Hi Alex, yeah. Hi, how are you? Good, good, yeah. Just recovering from a uh, trip to Adelaide. It was there in the 46.6 degrees yesterday. Holy moly. So. <laughs> I've got a bunch of questions that I've written down. Just I've went and stalked you a little bit because we've never met, um, I don't think, face-to-face. Well, I can't remember meeting you. No, not properly, yeah. I've been kind of uh, seeing you in the hallways at conferences once or twice and yeah, I wanted to say a few things, but I just never got to it. So yeah, so it is nice <laughs> to meet. Actually, I was going to say it's nice to meet because I don't really know many yeah. people in Sydney. I don't have a good network compared to Melbourne. Like all the agile people mm. kind of mix at all the same conferences all the time, but I don't really know many mm. people in Sydney. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm pretty connected in. I guess part of the scene in Sydney. It's pretty diverse here, but yeah, I, I run the Sydney Scrum uh, user group and. Been involved with that for ten years, so yeah, right. yeah lots of uh, regulars there and lots of new faces too. You know, when we run the meetups each month, pretty much. Yeah, well, I was going to yeah. ask what the um, scene was like there. Is it? I mean, there's there's probably a lean coffee on most days of the week in Melbourne, and there'd be a similar, you know, meetup most weeks, and, and there's quite often meetups where the the timing is um, conflicted here because they're so popular. Or there's so many of them, rather. Is that the same? Yeah. yeah, it is the same in Sydney. Yeah, I used to try to get to like all the Agile meetups when there's like you know, two, three, four of them. And now that there's like a dozen or more, it's, I don't even know what they all are, let alone able to get to them all. So, yeah, yeah, but, yeah it is hard to avoid clashes uh, a fair bit as well, just trying to schedule things. So, yeah, it's pretty diverse. You know, they've got lots of different sort of niche ones and sometimes ones that sound pretty much the same and someone else starts another one up. So, yeah, yeah but um, there's, there's kind of two or three big ones, I guess, and then there's um, lots of medium-sized and smaller ones. Well, that's mm. good to know, I think, because I think I'm, I must be in a real Melbourne bubble in lots of ways and you, you just sort of, I don't know, focus on what's local to you a lot of the time. So it's good to know that it's alive and well. Um, in other states, I mean, obviously, because you know all the conferences go there, so you, you kind of figure that it must be. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get the feeling the scenes are a little different between Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, it's often hard to describe, right? Like you know, <laughs> you know, the whole Sydney Melbourne debate in other ways as well. You know, yeah. Uh, it sounds like you know. I get the feeling it's really quite tight knit in Melbourne. There's definitely a, you know a lot of regular faces. I see at a lot of the, the events there, but. Um, yeah, Sydney, it's it's a little bit more patchy in certain ways. I think there's like lot, lots of different sort of subgroups, I think, yeah. and, and sort of different sort of interests, and it's kind of splintered in, in various ways a fair bit. But, you know, there's still yeah, a lot of um, connection um, between people. It's just probably not quite as cohesive in a way, uh, I just feel. But, yeah, um, yeah it's part of the thing with a big city, I guess, and lots of, you know, people – 
new to the city and people moving in and out and, you know, a lot of change, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And sometimes it's also the kind of companies, I guess, that are doing agile stuff or delivering in that way or doing digital transformations. And you've got the mm. biggies there in terms of Google and Atlassian and, I mean, who else would be the ones that you would point to in Sydney that would be the... Well, if, interestingly, you don't get people from either of those organisations. Oh. Tony, have to act on meetups in my experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, there's heaps of. You can really see the what's going on with the like, banks, insurance companies. There's a lot of financial services in Sydney, and yeah, there, there are some, I guess, uh, medium-sized organisations doing doing some sorts of products that are software-intensive and things. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's mostly you know business IT you know, sorts of applications, I guess. And, um, yeah, uh, it's a real variety, I guess. But a lot of financial services, I think, is probably the primary thing. And probably the same in Melbourne. I just think in Melbourne we've got the REA Group, Seek, um, Car Sale, Zero, MYOB. There's quite a lot of those, um, I guess, digital businesses. Um, and and the, the working population of those teams seem to kind of shift around from from company to company, culture amp and Barto, um, et cetera, et cetera. They just seem to be mm-hmm. on a big merry-go-round of going from company to company, really, and taking those ways of working with them, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I guess we do have some you know, fintech and you know, a few things like Iconic and, and startups and things. And, and I mean, some of those, like the Iconic, I guess, has got a, an agile thing going. It's uh, quite visible and... Um, uh, uh, Tyro and things like that, but um, yeah, that probably some of those are a little, you know, more in the start of startup mode and uh, perhaps less kind of getting into uh, coming along to meetups and things. It seems other than the, you know, perhaps entre- entrepreneurial sort of meetups and perhaps perhaps some um, lean uh, lean startup sorts of ones. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so just winding it back a little bit, um, mm. I'd love to hear just, I guess, as you're, a, I guess, a pioneer of agility in Australia in lots of ways, being someone who sort of founded one of the early um, meetups. Do you want to just run me through what your journey's been with agility and scrum and your background, I guess? Yeah, okay. If I can keep it pretty short. Uh, Yeah, I guess I was uh, in technical roles for 10 years, uh, working in Canberra. And uh, in about 2001, we were using a language called Smalltalk, uh, and had a sort of this revelation that well, there's all these tools that we didn't know how to use. It started from the tool angle, I think, um, back then. Uh, things like refactoring tools, and you know, we were sort of asking ourselves, "What's refactoring?" You know? <laughs> and uh, basically, we had a we we're really lucky to get a, a nickel coach in. Uh, he was actually based in Sydney and uh, actually at IBM at the time because we are using IBM Visual Age small talk tool set and, and uh, he actually p- sat down and started pair programming with the team and that went on for six months as far as I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I didn't know what – all he was telling us was this is the way good small talk was developed software originally. Yeah. But what I came to realize a little later was actually what he was teaching us was extreme programming technical practices and then a bit later again I realized oh, this thing called the Agile Manifesto had uh, been authored and uh, it was kind of related to that. So yeah, I kind of got the, the bug from that because I was already pretty skeptical about the waterfall uh, experiences I'd had. I had a few uh, things including um, 
yeah, you might call call them death marches, I guess, doing uh, high stakes government uh, projects and things. And um, yeah, and we got into um, product development. So there's the company I was working for is really quite an interesting mix. It was doing bespoke things for government, federal government, and ACT government there. Uh, but it was also developing products. And one of them was, um, you know, developed the National Film and Sound Archive, sold to the uh, Library of Congress and the Bundesarchiv. And so it was an internationally successful enterprise collection management uh, thing. And, yeah, we, we found when we got uh, extreme programming technical practices going, we really needed a, a way to organise the team, you know, differently and get a much more, more cross-functional team going, a way to get it get away from the, the big upfront analysis and design. And, and uh, yeah, that's where I went to a conference in North America. So it was first time to North America and just went to this um, small talk conference it was. And uh, it was actually Scott Ambler, funnily enough, who mm-hmm. did a presentation on are you agile or are you fragile? I think it was the title. And in that he basically went through a few different agile methods and I think one slide on Scrum and there's a few things he said about Scrum just sounded exactly like what we needed at work to, to deal with all the rest of the, the kind of social environment, the interactions and the uh, getting away from the um, sort of uh, management things that were, were uh, holding us back. So took that back, uh, did some presentations about it at work and everyone seemed to love it. Like I, both the developers were like, yeah, this is going to really help and uh, the management was like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, became a scrum master heaps of mistakes because I knew no one else really doing this uh, much in Australia at that time since uh, 2003 and um, yeah uh, about 2004 yeah we kind of started to apply to this you know, product development and it really took off from there mm-hmm. so yeah 2007 um, yeah I went to a conference and this actually ties in with the Scrum Australia thing if you want to mm-hmm. uh, relate to that Went to a uh, scrum gathering in London, so it's a global scrum gathering, and uh, I was actually lucky enough to get to speak there. I was, I was speaking about, I think it was kicking scrum butt, I think it was. It was the title of the session because uh, there's things like, like people used to call them scrum butts when we're, you know, doing scrum but we don't have a product owner, oh, yeah. you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, basically, uh, you know, I'd been trying to kind of help other organisations like a my boss was really good at indulging people's sort of interests and, yeah. you know, gave me enough kind of leash to spend a few months trying to start up a new sort of line of business to do some agile coaching essentially is what I wanted to, yeah. to get into. And, um, yeah, couldn't find anyone hardly. I think I did one day of paid work, you know, in that sort of, <laughs> in that sort of area in that sort of six months. Uh, but then, you know, I was in London and I spoke to some of the people at the, um, the gathering and they were sponsoring it. And said, "Oh, we're looking for we're hiring agile coaches. You know, would you like to come to an interview?" So uh, did a couple of interviews and actually got the job. So uh, yeah, got a job as an agile coach in London in 2007. And yeah, that was I guess that was another real big turning point for me. That that organisation was says like the number one Scrum consultancy in the UK at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 400 consultants. Everything was done agile. Uh, as much as possible, and uh, that was well the one that Ken Schwaber was involved with in mm-hmm. the UK yeah. originally, and then when I was there, Mike Cohn was the the partner that came and did the training every sort of two three months. Two big names um, 
Yeah. So anytime I could uh, wiggle my way out of what I was sort of meant to be doing on the project work, I could sit down in one of Mike Cohn's courses. And yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So I had interesting experiences, including, you know, something that was scaled up 80 people, 120 people, 160 people in 2007, 8. And yeah, multinational, five different, you know, vendors and all sorts of things for the big um, thing was rolled out to 34 countries, I think, or something like that. Yeah, really got to see that this does work, right? And there mm-hmm. are ways to scale it and things like that mm-hmm. um, 10 years ago. Well, I came back to Australia as a CST and uh, started doing the trainings, yeah. yeah. I mean, just in my stalking of you, it does look like you're quite affiliated with Grum. There's, I guess, quite a lot of dogma in our community in different pockets. Where do you sit on the on that? Yeah, I mean, it, like, even one thing, I, I sensed that back, back in 2007 I started a meetup group in Canberra and I think I put as a tagline uh, I had the word agnostic in there you know uh, <laughs> um, method agnostic or whatever it's the agile community sort of thing yeah I guess you know, I started with extreme programming and then you know came to Scrum after that and just saw you know that was really we needed both right it was really effective to use both together and the guy that taught me Scrum uh, who did the first CSM course in Australia was Joseph Pelrine and he worked alongside Kent Beck for years so, you know, he, XP and Scrum, this is how it works together, let's all be friends, you know, kind mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. that's the attitude I got from him. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've run into just a different sort of attitudes, I guess. And I do think it's really played out differently in Australia than it is in other parts of the world. Oh, yeah. How so? How so, yeah. So, well, <laughs> for one thing, I just... Uh, you know, I think one thing we've got to acknowledge is for years there was only really one player in Australia that was really advocating this stuff and uh, really on the ground doing it. I guess ThoughtWorks were mm. really dominant for years and you know, ThoughtWorks have got a, sort of their own style, I guess, of things and uh, it's not quite Scrum um, style. So, yeah, I think that, that has become a thing. There's quite a lot of people that, that follow that sort of line of thinking. Um, other countries has been quite different. So, you know, I remember when I worked in the UK, uh, you know, we did compete against ThoughtWorks, but um, you know, for agile coaching, we really got the got the gig because we we're much more focused on uh, that sort of uplift and uh, organisational change and uh, capability building, lasting benefits and things. ThoughtWorks tended to be the delivery model and walk in and do the job and walk back out kind of thing. So, yeah, and just two different sort of. Uh, almost philosophies, I guess, about uh, uh, where the kind of core of this is. I think there's mm. uh, some great stuff in Extreme Program with the technical practices and, and a lot of it um, yeah, runs in a sort of project environment, especially if you're doing sort of contract work and project work. Uh, some of the, I think, really interesting stuff in, in Scrum is uh, really around the organisational design implications and around a different whole take on uh, management and uh, self-management and and you know some of the sorts of um, cultural stuff that leads to, and uh, you know, and actually getting away from projects, even yeah. getting into you know, know pure product development. Yeah, I do yeah. think they were the. When I say they, I think of the Scrum body as the ones that really brought us that concept of product development over um, project delivery. Interesting though that you mentioned ThoughtWorks because um, Martin Fowler was a small talk developer back in the day, yeah. and yeah, you started with XP and and. XP developed out of the small talk development community. Yeah, as did Scrum. Yeah, right. right. Uh, and so, yeah, actually, at this 
small talk conference, I remember Scott Hamble saying most of the people put to write the Agile Manifesto were small talkers. Yeah, you know, the, right. I think the majority, if you look at it, right? and yeah, the C3 project and the yeah, the um, easel stuff that Sutherland did was all small talk. Um, yeah, and and yeah, I could do a whole talk on that almost. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I've been almost wanting to get together with people like Ron Jeffries and if, if you know, we, at one point we tried to do this at a gathering. You know, there's Kenny Rubin. Uh, he was one of the early small talk guys that was a, a big scrum guy these days. And yeah, to put together some sort of explanation of like what is it about the discipline of small talk and the way small talk gets you thinking and behaving that actually leads to agile thinking and agile mm-hmm. mindset and agile behavior. Because there really is a whole lot of stuff that's, that's really neat about the way you tend to develop in small talk that, that leads to that sort of mindset. Okay, but that's that's my experience. Yeah. Okay, yeah. What about the new frameworks, the modern agile and heart of agile, and you know where where some of those originators of even other ideas are trying to strip things back down and and almost dumb it down, I guess, to to make it more digestible for areas outside of technology. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I haven't got deep into to, to those. I guess you might say compared with some people. I, I did know, notice I, that you devoted ninety slides to a less versus um, Scrum comparison. <laughs> so yeah, true. Yeah, I'll say those, those couple I have. Um, uh, yeah, I, I was thinking more of um, modern agile and hard of agile. I guess. And, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Interesting. They so sort of dumb it down. <laughs> I mean, it's simple is good. I mean, that's one of the things. Um, you know, I think it's the small talk sensibilities really come across strongly, right? Like really um, it's simple, right? It, there's something beautiful about simplicity and, and, and power and simplicity. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's also the, it's the whole crossing the chasm thing, I think, right? With I think um, when I – yeah, that, that stuff I was taught in, with extreme programming is really high-discipline stuff, mm-hmm. right? And and there's a lot to know, a lot to learn, and you know, you, you realise it's a, a journey that goes on for years, and it's it's not a, a, a quick superficial thing, and it's not just fluffy thing. It's this really kind of, you know, really um, you know, disciplined sorts of things to it. And I think, yeah, as things have gone uh, over the chasm, I guess to the early majority and perhaps the late majority, even people are looking looking to to kind of make it easier for adoption and and make it sort of fit in with certain parts of the status quo that you know harder to change or perceived as harder to change or just not what people are motivated to change or see a business need to, to change basically mm. so I'm not sure it totally relates to those new things but it's just that um, again the, the values and principles kind of approach you know the agile manifesto is, is, is great except that it can be so easily kind of skimmed over and not taken seriously mm. It's 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 less tangible. It's it's kind of less concrete, I guess. Uh, quite a lot of that stuff, and and that's where I think some of the things that are pretty simplistic, I guess, in terms of um, values and statements and things like that, people need to translate them to something more concrete and and you know, real tangible. What are the implications of that? I think before it makes an impact. I think it's pretty easy for people to say yeah, yeah, yeah to that and not really change their ways in a way that's. Uh, really going to have the same sort of impact as if you did, you know, high discipline extreme programming or really took Scrum to the full mm. you know, degree that you could, etc. You must be inside a lot of companies or you must have been inside a lot of companies in amongst all of your training and consulting and coaching work. 
What are the patterns or anti-patterns that you keep seeing over and over again that just drive you bananas? Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one too, yes. Well, where do you start? Um, uh, I, I think there's definitely the dumbing down of the, the scrum roles, for instance, um, and some of the frameworks promote this. It's just really an unfortunate thing, this idea that the product owner, because they're part of the team, and considered that way these days, which is actually something that came in you know, more recent years. They must be somewhat junior, you know. Mm. And the the decisions about strategy for a product, or the decisions about really what the overall priorities are, are kind of made elsewhere, you know, and, and kept in some sort of steering committee or some sort of um, overarching governance framework. And then, especially when uh, these things are put in a box, and often this box is called delivery. Mm. And so the delivery seems to imply that there's some other way of doing discovery and there's some other way of kind of uh, perhaps even maintaining at BAU and whatever else. And mm. uh, all it is is your task with here's the stuff to deliver, just deliver it basically. Yeah, right. That's the, the function of agile kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that frustrates me. It's just like you, you completely kind of put this into a far too narrow box uh, from yeah. the get-go. And, and especially where there is that let's kind of def- – People put this work into to define, you know, what to deliver in a more traditional way and there's that sign-off and the gates and, you know, this sort of thing. Um, you know, then you just don't have that stakeholder engagement. Stakeholders have already said, well, development's already signed up to what we want them to do. We're just going to, you know, have a look at it when it's all finished. Mm. And so you just have people not come along to, to sprint reviews. and Or if they're, if they're doing that, then they're just taking it as a sort of, uh, did development do what I asked them to do kind mm-hmm. of exercise uh, rather than let's actually roll up our sleeves and actually collaborate on the direction of this product to make it a better product. Yeah. Uh, and it misses a lot of the essence of Scrum. So one thing, yeah, I have seen – actually, one, one perhaps the illustrative point because I teach in uh, New Zealand a lot. I do a lot of training there and also in Australia. And, you know, when we talk about well, what just happens at the end of a national sprint cycle – you know, in, in New Zealand, people go, you know, sprint review. In Australia, everyone goes showcase. Right? So <laughs> the ThoughtWorks showcase thing has been that dominant, I guess, in Australia that uh, yeah, it's just everywhere, it seems. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of – I've had someone I know from ThoughtWorks describe when, when we talk about what a sprint review is meant to be about, not mm-hmm. just an inspect but actually an adapt and really workshopping what new changes and what, what different direction we might take with the product. Yeah. Uh, yeah, basically say that's not what a lot of these showcases are doing. So, and, and that, I think that's one real linchpin thing. Like that's governing the direction of your product's development to actually be effective to produce the right solution, yeah. which is um, something that people still seem to be trying to figure out up front in an inception or some yeah. sort of major workshop sort of thing. I wonder if it's also because we, we come in and we coach a team or a, a bunch of teams that's not part of the whole organisation. that, And so everyone in the rest of the organisation still has their roles and their whatever, their hierarchical importance and accountability and no one's going to let go of that in order just for a few teams to go and build something in that, you know, following a scrum or an agile methodology. Yeah, so it's just, it's just like those people need something to do so they'll go off and just do it in the way that they've done it before um, and wonder why. That yeah, this te- this this team keeps getting in a room and telling me about the what they've developed every two weeks. So uh, that's probably yeah. something con- that contributes to it, which mm-hmm. then 
but you know, personally, I'm not a believer that the whole organisation has to go agile. Otherwise, no one can do agile. That seems like a little bit of a high stakes game. No, sure, yeah, and it's not, and it depends what you're trying to achieve out of it too. A lot of adoptions that just don't have any clear adoption goal or mm. uh, vision vision for what we want out of Agile, what's the business outcome, what's the different performance characteristics of the organisation that we're actually trying to achieve here. Mm. And actually in, even in 2007, I, part of my presentation, I wish I'd kind of said more since was uh, the Sandy pattern of goalless. I think I said goalless, soulless Scrum or Goalless, Soulless, Agile. Like we have not a alignment or a clarity about what we're trying to achieve through mm. this adoption. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and that's one thing. I, yeah, I, I've, I've really, every engagement I do these days, I start with the why question. Mm. You know, why are you pursuing this? You know, and let's get specific. And I was even doing that yesterday with a client. Uh, yeah, and getting the leadership together and sort of, it's really interesting. Sometimes you see, you know, you know, 15 different answers from 15 people kind of thing and sometimes you, they've already you know, got an alignment. And, uh, but and the reasons aren't always things like agility in terms of being able to change, uh, low cost of change, really be able to have that nimble adaptability. Uh, uh, plenty of organisations, uh, it's weird, it's like different parts of Australia even or different so- sorts of organisations, some I think have really been sold on the the faster to market, you know, um, faster efficiency sort of thing and don't really have in mind a sort of less linear, let's actually be adaptable to actually discover exactly what the best solution is and, mm. and uh, this sort of thing. Um, so that yeah. makes a big difference, you know, what people think this is trying to achieve will, will mm. lead to sort of different setups and even different amount of engagement from business stakeholders. Um, yeah, and I, what I was describing before too uh, with the – I guess um, stakeholders not being engaged and just trying to agree up front what's the scope that's going to be delivered and we'll just come back at the end. A really good description of that I've come across is um, contract game. Uh, Craig Lum Craig Lum has been uh, articulating that uh, for a while. So, yeah, I won't go through it right now. But it's it's just that sort of game where the business basically shifts responsibility to development to deliver on what the contractual agreement is about the scope and date basically. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's development's problem and you know it's it's really that whole thing in there John Manifesto about you know essentially the valuing um, contract negotiation approach to control over customer collaboration uh, and that's one of the biggest ones I think it's one of the hardest ones like out of the manifesto perhaps to really shift and mm. shift the mindset and shift the culture and shift the way you know real stakeholders work in with people who are responders and you know, really break down those barriers so that we can actually steer it directly. You know, yeah. it's actually a really powerful way to control something to actually have direct steering, sprint to sprint, iteration to iteration. Um, but people still fall back on, no, I want it all signed off and agreed and, mm. you know, we've got to figure this out up front. Yeah. Are you um, surprised at how slowly knowledge spreads in some ways? I mean, you've been doing this since early 2000s and I certainly have and, before that sometimes I'm surprised that people have latched onto the word agile for sure but even then there's still plenty of waterfall and you might be surprised at how many clients you still find that are not woke yet yeah I've started thinking is the stuff we're talking about is really quite often heretical at the level of management innovation Hamill I think talks about this right um 
So yeah, there's there's things like product innovation, right? And then there's above that sort of business model innovation, which is a more substantial thing. And you know, entrepreneurial people will kind of get that. Normally, if you know we want to be competitive, we might need to even change our business model if we're going to be disrupted if, or something like that. Um, but then there's this thing about that, which is like management innovation about, you know, what are our even beliefs about how an organization should function and, and you know, even, it, and it really does rub up against, I think, people's feeling of um, status and, you know, ego. And I, I think that's one of the things that frustrates me too, is the, the uh, status race kind of thing where we see uh, things like even that product owner role I mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes can be sort of flood of people wanting to be a product owner because I think it's got status associated with it. Oh. Or and the, one of the perhaps the, the worst ones I think is the you know, flood of people wanting to move on from being a scrum master to be an agile coach because I think it's got status associated with it, <laughs> or a higher pay grade or, or whatever it is, right? And and often that's the way things have been set up. Unfortunately, with um, career paths or mm. HR or recruitment or whatever, yes. we're paying people more for for something that. Yeah, it's really undervaluing the thing perhaps that um, they could be doing which might be even more impactful in a lot of situations. For sure, yeah. It's uh, actually fascinating the way that hierarchies creep in even in the midst of when an organisation is very deliberately saying we're going to take this out and we're going to try this different approach and then suddenly seniors, juniors and mids and, and all these levels um, and you know suddenly career paths emerge that you know, BA is going to become a a junior product owner and is then going to become a product owner and then a product manager and just think, wow, that is that a career path now? Yeah. And, and, and we've that, missed that whole uh, um, T-shaped mm. opportunity really as people put themselves on a track and start to try and rise. Yeah, and I, even that BA becoming a product owner thing I'm quite concerned about too, right? It, um, you know, especially business analysts being in the IT group, you know, what are we fundamentally changing? We're not getting direct collaboration from the business unit that's got most at stake, right? We're yeah. not having someone have come from that commercial decision-making perspective and make decisions on what not to do. We're actually yeah. having more someone as a requirement analyst break things down and just spoon-feed it to the teams quite often. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really not the intention. And that's the sort of subtleties. I think people don't really – it's not so – like obvious that's the intention I think in the first mm. instance people sort of look at descriptions that they can plausibly believe that yeah business analysts could be that sort of product owner but uh, and I've had these conversations with you know quite prominent people in the agile community in, in Australia and, and they sort of don't really seem to kind of get the difference perhaps sometimes so mm. yeah that's just one thing I try to help people with and, and something where the obviously the scaling frameworks are just all over the shop with it um, mm. You know, SAFE has this big hierarchy and, and I've seen you know, SAFE implementations where it's really just temporary feature uh, specifiers, I'd, I'd say, what they call product owners. Like they're just subject matter experts in one you know, niche piece and, and they'll just come in and spec out these user stories and, and hand them off to the team and clarify things. Mm. Um, virtually no decision-making about what goes into the product or uh, ability to steer the overall mm. offering. Um, nothing close to anything strategic, mm. um, whereas less is the opposite of that, basically. Yeah, mm. did look through your pack and I would agree. I haven't done less in anger, but I have been part of um, a safe implementation and I think safe is the more dangerous animal for sure because it also cuts out, I think it misses a, a huge opportunity for test and learns, even though it would say it's probably in there in the methodology somewhere, 
um, but it really is just a big rumbling um, delivery shop model really. And I wonder what the future for SAFE will be actually. Maybe it's good enough yeah. for some organisations, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, like it's, it's, like even Jeff Sutherland actually at the London Scrum Gathering was that recently, he said, you know, SAFE is, is I think he said along the lines of SAFE is okay or whatever if management doesn't understand what they're doing, I think is what they put it. But when you know management gets to understand what this agile thing's really about, then to look beyond safe basically. Yeah. Uh, and I do know some people in, in the US, particularly in some parts of the world, where they've had quite a lot of this safe out there for a few years, that have really uh, identified that quite a few organisations, the safe adoptions are stalling out mm. after about 18 months to two years. Mm. They're actually promoting themselves as I'll, I'll come in and help you out once yeah. you realise this isn't working out, basically. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen that too. Yeah, look, it's hard. And, and I know some great coaches, that great thinkers that make a lot of money out of implementing it too. So I don't know really how to feel about that ultimately. But Yeah, I think it's the, the congruence and, and the sort of implications of the ideas is the, the thing that can be lacking in some of these things. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about lean principles and say, for instance, and... Uh, you know, a variety of things, but you know, if you look at the implications of it, and this is where I, what one thing I picked up from Les that's it really helps us see the sort of congruence of the ideas too is systems thinking really, and you're really looking at what uh, organisational dynamics do the things lead to, and, and what's necessary to kind of actually disrupt that and have a, a different dynamic in an organisation. Because um, there are some sort of some setups with component teams and things that lead back to to essentially waterfall. Mm. You know, someone's got to figure out which component team does which component pieces in order to meet a business requirement, which means we kind of need someone who's a bit like an architect to kind of figure that out. Mm. You know, what, how does that business requirement get to the architect? We need someone like a business analyst to kind of feed that through. And so, mm. yeah, there's things like this where we'll kind of never get away. To, uh, fully from, from the waterfall model mm. um, if we keep those sort of structures even. Yeah. What's piquing your interest then in our community of agile scrum people or what are you seeing or hearing that's, that you're thinking might be the next thing or where things are headed? Uh, well, things I'm really interested in, uh, put it that way, and it's a bit more pick these things up from overseas, I guess. But, yeah, uh, certainly like less, I guess we've just mentioned that, I've, I've been very interested in for a few years. Um it does really align with a lot of the scaling approaches I've used, not necessarily hundreds of people, but, you know, a few teams. Of course, with Bess and, and I think Craig Larman, I went to a course with him in London. It was, I think, the best course I've been to in the last 10 years, just in terms of its relevance to the stuff I do too, as well as just how it really blows out of the water. So many things that people have misconceptions about and just continue to sort of believe uh, things that are, are going to work out well. Um, but there's, he's got really powerful ways of uh, sort of debugging those things in people's minds, I think. Yeah, yeah I've been really interested in organisational culture. So, yeah, I think Michael Sahota put me onto that uh, several yeah, years yeah. back yeah. and um, I do assessments around that sort of thing. And, yeah, that can be just, you know, really interesting to see what the perception is. Just because a lot of it's like how people perceive the environment they're in and um yeah what that means for the uh, what i've seen is the type of culture that an organization has really has consequences in terms of the style of agile or even how they 
interpret agile basically mm-hmm. in an adoption. So, and the, I yeah did a talk on that with the Lalu model, I guess. So the, the sort of spiral dynamics thing. Um, yeah, because I think we've got you know, plenty of examples where, where it's government organisations in you know, amber and or- orange, I guess. Mm. With, particularly um, with banks and uh, larger corporates and things like that, have a different take on Agile and employ it in a quite a different way to a, a green organisation with that green sort of culture. So I have worked like the, uh, in organisations where I, I think, at least in retrospect, that they were really cultivating a green type of you know collaboration culture. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, one that was where the, a leader was really trying, even though it was early days with it, to cultivate something closer to even a bit of teal there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very rare, I think. It's really quite a, a real different belief set, uh, mind, mind, worldview, I guess, for someone to do that. But it's sort of encouraging if you see if you see little hints of that happening or signals of that happening. It's, a, it's an indication it's spreading, I guess. Yeah, and I think it happened in different industries more easily than others, you know, mm. arguably in... Uh, perhaps not-for-profit or uh, or really purpose-driven organisations where there's like a really ambitious big-picture thing and we, and we want to make, make the world better and there's kind of, you know, some meaningful, you know, thing around that. Mm. Uh, yeah. And and by the way, the, the recent Scrum Gathering, regional Scrum Gathering we had in, in Sydney, we, we did have a whole lot of not-for-profits. It seems like that's a, an interesting new sector that's jumping in on the Agile thing yeah. with, you know, Oz Harvest and... Um, Bernardo's and Lifeline and a whole bunch of those ones, yeah. And, oh, and I think they find the values really align a lot with, with their values, you know, a lot of being very people-centric and humanistic, really wanting to help people thrive and, mm. and all this sort of thing, yeah. yeah. It's amazing how many places that uh, can install agile ways of working and sort of skip over that part of it though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it can be a very process you know, thing again, right? Like, yeah. This is a bit of a philosophical question. If you could change one thing about yourself, your clients, or the Agile community, like wave a magic wand, what would it be? Um, yeah, interesting question. Um, really with the community, like basically having more kind of engagement where we can talk through some differences in our philosophies and differences in our little bubbles we seem to be kind of and comfort in basically mm. uh, you know I, I think we yeah do get this echo chamber thing going on well you know when I run a scrum music group it's really sort of scrum aligned people coming along to that and then yeah, right. you know if I went to I probably would feel quite different going to a safe meetup or whatever <laughs> it's a safe uh, meetup <laughs> I don't know like this yeah and there's just some bubbles right and they're not listening to each other and not yeah. really engaging meaningfully with each other mm. and there's there's things that are actually, you know, conflicting ideas there, but uh, we can learn a lot from each other out of those conflicting ideas. It, but it does take more time and energy and, you know, just uh, kind of getting a bit out of your comfort zone to, to deal with that, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah, so right, actually. We had the 10th birthday meetup celebration a little while ago for the Scrum and Agile user group in Melbourne that Martin Kern started. And there was quite a lot of time given over to debating between you know, why Why all of the angst and the competition between frameworks and, you know, what's the point in kind of us shaming each other really. And it is super interesting because back in the early days, like in the late 90s and early 2000s when, because I was in London back then, you'd go to a meetup 
and all the scrums and the XPs and the agiles and everyone would go because there wouldn't be that many of you. And you yeah. would have more discussion about the similarities and differences because it hadn't sort of splintered into all of those factions yet. Um, yeah. And, yeah, we've lost that because, it, yeah, you've only got so many – there's only so many meetups you can attend. You've got your work to do to pay the bills as well. So it's kind of like nothing that's sort of forcing us to be, to be together for constructive debate, I suppose. Yeah, I think this goes on within organisations too. You know, if they – you know, adopt the so-called non-existent Spotify models, then <laughs> they're basically hiring people who either are that way inclined or basically, you know, there's that agenda that you'll fit in with that kind of thing mm. and not listening to people that might say, hey, to solve those same problems, there's actually other ways, you know, mm. <laughs> maybe they're worth considering, right? Mm. So, um, yeah. yeah. It's always a trade-off of how much energy do you put into following your methodology or your rules or your um, doctrine versus... Um, yeah, adapting it and trying different things. And there's always going to be, I guess, an effort trade-off for, for, for making those decisions. But, it's a, yeah, I suppose it's a continual learning thing. Um, yeah, recently there was a, there was a debate meet-up. In, you, I don't know if you attended the one in Sydney about consultancies versus boutique, boutique consultancies versus big, um, uh, big consultancies. Yeah, no, I couldn't make it to that one. I saw it. I wanted to go, but it, yeah, because yeah. then there's that into debate now, <laughs> debate as well now. So, um, right. I mean, it's interesting that agile people are the kind of people who will come together to chat about that sort of stuff and you know, the philosophies as well as the approaches and methodologies. Yeah, I, I've run into a bit of the you know big management consultancies uh, thing, right, with certain clients. Um, yeah, and. Probably a whole other discussion, but yeah, seen it sort of work out not so well, I guess, in certain organisations, um, in certain respects, with just their approach to, to adoption. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's there is concern about this, not just yeah around Australia, but um, overseas as well. As certainly in some of the scrum gatherings, people have got up and talked about experiences with some of those um, management consultancies, and um, yeah, and again, that's a, a lack of um, engagement between the communities too you know they've mm. got their in-house way of doing things and um, they don't normally show up at um, all you know the agile conferences and sort yeah. of really listen to what um, uh, people are saying there and sometimes it's a bit of like well we're doing these you know half billion dollar monstrous kind of mm. things and these guys don't even understand that and they yeah. you know sort of discount that you know long time agile practitioners would, would have some things that might be relevant to them perhaps I think too yeah right mm can sort of see both sides. You know, you obviously go into a lot of places, you're doing a lot of training courses, it seems, um, and coaching. How do you know that when you've left, what you've done will stick or you've been effective? I really like to be able to come back in and actually look at that, right? Because it's, it's um, and one thing I'm trying to do too is have a, a bit of a, A, like a improvement goals, you know, and, and be able to have some, some more specifics about what it looks like to achieve them. Mm. You know, uh, one thing I'm quite interested in at the moment is the agile fluency model. Yeah, I, I guess, and that's yeah, got got some you know, fairly specific things attached to it too. And yeah, uh, I, yeah, I've had some. So yeah, some clients are you know really just naturally into that. Uh, mm. I've got some clients where I've come back in, whether it's like you know a year later or six months later or whatever it is, and and um, be, be looking at like their progression and you know 
where to now and you know it's it's I learned a lot from that too right mm-hmm. the things that they do pick up versus the things that they they haven't quite got got to yet yeah and um, yeah I can I, I think that's one thing I can do pretty pretty quickly actually it's uh, is really to provide a different set of eyes and perspective and there's, there's a whole lot of things where people are just so used to the way they've been doing it that they never realize oh we totally missed that um, angle and it's sort of weak on that area and, and that sometimes too people just aren't used to the continuous improvement thing I've seen quite a lot too that they'll just go to these retrospectives and they'll start to have complaints that retrospectives just seem to be not coming up with anything not going anywhere and and often it, it's just a, a lack of um, vision or lack of um, bigger picture thinking to go well <laughs> there's heaps of things out there that you know, could possibly you know be different and, and be a whole lot um, better for us but um, people have already just discarded them from their mind and just assume they're either outside their influence so much or just um, or not even aware that they're a possible thing you know not even aware that they could be doing continuous delivery or not aware that we could have a, a, a whole lot different level of product ownership or engagement with the business stakeholders or whatever mm. that they don't even start to, to look at that mm. yeah what about the um, not necessarily tangible things, but the the softer things? Like, what are your cues when you're with a team or a bunch of individuals that they're kind of getting it? Yeah, I think uh, so you really uh, an energy to take initiative to try new things is a is a big one. Um, people aren't just sort of, and also like people aren't just um, so feeling like the the real work is just to do more delivery and crank more stuff out that. Some of the real work is actually in in experimenting and, and trying smarter ways to work, you know, and that we've got time for that. We've got space for that and we should keep a bit of focus on that um, all the time basically, not just when something's really wrong, you know, fix it, but actually go proactively to look at things that um, we could turn up the knobs on and, and do better. Yeah. And I have seen that this, it's, yeah, just it's some people really kind of thrive on that and get, mm. get that, I think, that's, I've seen some scrum masters that really kind of instigate that, you know, the, their attitude and the, the way they kind of put things on the table and say, hey, guys, what about this? Or, this is an opportunity. Can we, can we do something cool here? Yeah. yeah, and just others are just more in that apathetic sort of thing. And, and, it, and it can even be the sort of – I think people are conditioned a lot these ways as well, right? The, even have years where they've just come to work and done their nine to five and gone home and, and that's all they sort of do and they – um, but yeah, people are, you know, perhaps a bit more, you know, I, I want to kind of hone my skills and grow as an individual and, and, and now see, yeah, it's about growing my team capability, not just me individually. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's, that's what we, yeah, when those teammates are actually helping each other out, you know, in a really active way too, uh, that, that's, again, I think that's the signals to me that they're really getting it, you know, and then they, they drop some of the, the, guard you know the whole um you know i i'm not going to expose myself to to look like i don't know my stuff kind of thing mm. uh, you know they got the safety to kind of really talk about what they do know what they don't know and really say let, let, let's work together on the stuff that you know i'm just not aware of or i just haven't done as much as you have mm. um, i think that's when you really start to see a click and people to get to that like often a, a leading sign is people just have that much more sort of relaxed candor with each other and, you know, just that easygoing, you know, nature and they can, and, 
laugh about things and go to lunch with each other and yeah. just feel really comfortable with each other basically and it's, it's not like I need to worry about how I'm going to be judged yeah. and that's that's not the first thing in their minds basically yeah. it's yeah. a good observation um where do you go to sharpen your sword I went along to the um first ORSC course in the organization of relationship system coaching one in Melbourne which I'm Melbourne is getting a lot more love with, I think, than Sydney at this stage with. And, um, yeah, I picked up the book. I didn't even realise originally there was a book on that, uh, creating, in, creating Intelligent Teams, living with relationship systems, you know. And it's by two very experienced women on this stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's excellent, you know. And, uh, and this, what I get really delighted about, if you will, like it really kind of excites me, is when I see stuff that's written, like, from people who aren't part of the agile community, nothing to do with software or tech or anything like that. And it just beautifully aligns with exactly what we're trying to encourage on the human side of agile. I'm like, this is gold. This is like (laughs) people, you know, have discovered this and and really got into this deeply, you know, outside of the agile kind of bubble, I guess. And we can learn a lot from that. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously the third less book I really kind of think is a good one. And yeah, I try to keep up with it few blog posts the social media i guess is the the thing these days where just those sound bites can yeah i can get too much of that not enough deaf sometimes but at least mm. when they point off to some really insightful articles i think there's, there's definitely some good stuff out there but just so much noise you know mm. so and <laughs> part of it's just getting to know who's who and you know who's got the got the good juicy stuff and uh where all the noise is at yeah cool. yeah i was actually thinking we would talk about more of the uh Scrum Australia thing. I thought oh, you were. Oh, please do. Re- please do. Actually, that was originally what Craig said. You should talk to Rowan about Scrum Australia. So please do. Briefly, we just had the fifth event um, in Sydney. So we had two in Sydney, then two in Melbourne, now back in Sydney, uh, just like last year. And yeah, it was really neat because we had like three keynotes that were all quite diverse. Uh-huh. Uh, so that. we had uh, Clark Ching from who's now in New Zealand, who's really Theory of Constraints. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, just, he's got a beautiful way of, of articulating things with just down-to-earth real-world examples and just telling stories. He's a big storyteller, right, and uh, he's really um, gets people to understand it from, from nice, simple stories. And we had Maria Mattarelli, who sort of specialises in agile marketing. So she actually runs uh, agile marketing courses uh, in other parts of the world at least and also you know she's really getting into personal agility business agility sorts of things mm-hmm. and um yeah we uh, had uh, Verna from south africa who's a guinness world record deep scuba uh world record holder right as a female uh, guinness world record holder oh. but also a lean and agile coach so <laughs> I love the thing, it when you yeah. find out about people's bizarre ulterior, you know, alter egos and other lives. Yeah, because well, I, mean, I think I heard the Guinness World Record thing first, and and um, you know, I think I've seen at other conferences we've had you know, speakers in who are you know, sports players or you know surgeons or you know whatever the amazing field is, yeah. but they haven't ever kind of really come across this agile community, and, and you know, for them it's a bit harder to connect the dots and translate, you know what they're doing out there to what we what's relevant for us, I guess. Yeah. Um, but she obviously could, right? She just, you know, in this all the time, helping big organisations, um, you know, change and things. So, yeah, that was awesome and really inspiring. Yeah. So, 
at that and a whole bunch of um, really you know good Australian and, and regional people. So it actually attracts people from Asia and India. And presented at Scrum Australia in 2016. Yeah. In Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and it was actually about safe, interestingly, because I had done it at post, so I felt like I you know it came from a position of knowledge that I could talk about it. Not that I was necessarily complimentary about it, but one of my preconceived my preconceptions was I, I'm not a scrum master, therefore maybe I can't talk at Scrum Australia. But it seemed like no, no, it was very open and and a place for our community to meet and gather. So yeah, I definitely return again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think a few people said that basically they expected it to be, you know, if you're not kind of one of us, you're not welcome or something, you know, which is totally not the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also the scrum is obviously a minimalist framework. It's not everything. Right. And, yeah. you know, you can't actually just do scrum and nothing else. It would, would not be even possible to, to, to work if you don't have any sort of agile technical practices or you haven't kind of figured out anything else about how you kind of, uh, uh communicate, um, needs with people and things. So, yeah, yeah, we're very interested in all of those complementary things. I guess, we're, I guess it's just a ha- case of having some sort of, sort of cohesion and, and sort of see how can you make these things work together in a cohesive way and yeah. sort of not be some sort of scattergun thing of the, whatever hyped up latest idea or whatever and people mm-hmm. go back to work and go, well, how can I make that kind of work with the other things that we've got there? That's, I guess, part of what I find useful about when there's some something that kind of hold it together I guess like yeah. Uh, scrum yeah and so is it running in Sydney and Melbourne again this year uh not so much this year I think we've taken 18 months between conferences okay. most of the time watch the scrum.com.au website I guess well, there's a there's okay. a newsletter there if you want to keep in the loop yeah yep okay well I'll put a link to that and um a link to where you can sign up for that newsletter you can talk about your um company which is called Scrum with style, yeah. So we've actually just celebrated our tenth birthday. Oh, congrats! So actually, you know, got a photo of me cutting a birthday cake for the company, <laughs> which uh, yeah, seemed to get a lot of uh, a lot of likes on uh, on LinkedIn, LinkedIn and things, which is nice. Yeah, these days we're not only doing the certified scrum master, certified scrum product owner, that have always been very popular, but uh, I'm, I'm offering an advanced certified scrum master as a path to the certified scrum professional. Mm-hmm. And, and this again is one thing I think is really not known about much that a lot of people just seem to go, well, it's two days of training. I just do that. And then that's it, you know, and there's nothing else on offer, which is totally not the case. And you know, now there's actually three levels of progression and, and a, a lot more depth, right? When you get into the, the advanced one, it's like we're people walking in, we're assuming you've already been practicing this for at least a year. Mm. You're already playing the Scrum Master role. You already have real world experience and battle scars and know what the challenges are. Now let's get really deep into the skills and how to be impactful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the Cal program, I'm really excited about too because that for a lot of years has been, I think, a big missing piece. You know, there's all these people come to these courses and say, I love it. I want, you know, get my team doing this, but, you know, my boss doesn't get it. My boss's mm. boss doesn't get it. There's all these other people out there that just don't come on these courses that just aren't really understanding mm. it. And, yeah, the Certified Agile Leadership was a approach to, to address that. And Cal 1 is just two days um, and it really – we're getting Michael Sahota out, so yeah, he's yeah. the one that's done more than any of these in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he's really refined his, you know, IP and material and a whole lot of things. He takes it very much from the culture perspective. And if you 
you know, believe that what you know, we need to achieve uh, a more high-performance organisation is the cultural change, then leaders go first and it's actually about you mm. figuring out how you can show up differently and, and lead the way with that basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I've done kind of with him all, all the way through to the Cal 2, which is not just three days of workshop but four months worth of actually applying it and actually reporting back what you've actually done you know, and, and how you applied this in, in the real world. So I found that fascinating. There's some people in this group, we couldn't stop talking. We were just like, we, you know, all the things we learned and all the things we were trying and, you know, um, yeah, just to see that some, like people like Big M's, for instance, going back and saying, I'm not going to dictate how we work now. I want you guys to, 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 to figure this out and I'll just listen and I'll support what yeah. the people doing the work say they want to do to go forward that's a great outcome Um, i think it's really good when you build a strong learning cohort like that it can be very powerful too and enjoyable yeah yeah exactly and i think that's one thing we could really do with uh more is like having a a clear professional development path and and also being appreciated that you know if you are trying to you know hire good people too you know it's it's more than just two days of training and mm. you know they're and, and it's hard to evaluate sometimes the how well they've applied things in the workplace too but obviously the experience and, and also have they really studied further have they really mm. worked hard at um, really learning more you know mm. thank you so much once again rowan it's been lovely meeting with you and talking to you in a little bit more depth but... thank you yeah thanks for doing this yeah really good questions too like oh, honestly like Take it easy, don't get too uh, too hot there.